If you would, get your Bibles out and open up to Romans chapter 3. Uh, and you might want to keep your finger in that because we're going we're to start with there and then we're going to kind of spin out to some other passages of Scripture as well. But we'll bounce back and forth into Romans 3. Uh, I want to begin by reading that. Romans 3, looking at verse 21 through 31. Or no, 21 through 30, 26. I've got to pay attention to my own notes. All right. It begins by saying this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, as we, we jump back into our study of the, the verses, here we go again. We have to go back and remind ourselves what took place in Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, is this dialogue that Paul sets out describing for us the sinfulness of man and where we have fallen. And, it, and it's all about the law and how we've broken the law by our actions and our deeds. All right? This conjures up for us, I think, an image of a courtroom, and we'll kind of dig into that a little bit today. Uh, you've got your courtroom, and you've got your defendant, and you've got the defense lawyer, and you've got the judge and the prosecutor, and all these things that roll together. You think of Perry Mason, or maybe you think of Matlock, or Law and Order, or, or Judge Judy, and, and there are some that you want on your side and others you don't want on your side, right? Well, the same thing is true when it comes to us standing in the courtroom of heaven we want to make sure that we've got the right defense attorney and the right judge and the right defense and all that flows with it. You see, in a fictional courtroom, usually, but not always, the innocent go free and the guilty are punished. That's just how it seems to always end up. And we root for those who are finally set free and we, we cheer when the guilty are condemned. This is the kind of situation that we have in our life because of our character of sin. Paul has just gone described in the very first couple of chapters here how we all have fallen into a lifestyle that goes against what God wants us to live, and we now are classified as sinners. We are charged with a crime, and we then become on trial before God because of what we have done. But unlike innocent defenders... We're guilty. I mean, we, we, there's no way around it. it. It's not presumed guilt. It, we are guilty. We have been caught red-handed with our hands in the cookie jar, and we have been charged with our crime of sin. And now, how are we going to get off? But we're not. You see, this is the context in which the doctrine of justification is described here in Romans and it is here in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, 
how the judge is going to decide our fate. Now, some have suggested that this little paragraph is probably the most important and if not most powerful passage of Scripture in the entire Bible because of what it lays out for us and gives us a good understanding. So to begin with, let's look at the crime. Romans 3.23 tells us simply you know, that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's it. We've all sinned. There's not a single person who hasn't. And that's what he has described there in chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. We all have done this. It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're slave, whether you're free. We've all sinned, and we've missed the mark of being perfect. To sin basically is to go against God's laws. It's lawlessness is what it comes down to. The, the Greek word for lawlessness is anomia. And anomia means an, ega, an illegality of something, a violation of law. It, it is wickedness. It is iniquity. These are words that we hear often. It's transgression, where we transgress the law and we break the law. It is, un, unfortunately, summed up in the word unrighteousness. That's what we've done. We have broken it. We are lawless in this. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, the Apostle John tells us this. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why? Because sin is lawlessness. I mean, that's what it comes down to. If you have sinned, you are a lawless individual. Anomia is both a state of the heart with an inward action of what we're thinking and how we're feeling and the emotion of it. Okay, so this is what it sums up with. But it's also an external action where we do something because of what we're thinking internally and how we're relating to things. So it's both internal and external and breaking the law. Now, in our courts of law, fortunately, only external acts apply, right? You may think about stealing that Tootsie Roll from the candy store, so, but the court of law is not going to do anything about you thinking about it. It's when you actually steal that Tootsie Roll that you're in trouble, right? But anomia means you're guilty for thinking about it. He says, we all far short of the glory of God. Now, this terminology, falls short, it's summed up in this way when you kind of break it down. It is a present verb in passive, indicative, third-person, plural form. So, in other words, it can be translated, we keep falling short. We keep missing the mark. It's an ongoing action that started in the past and it continues to go on into the future. It's this, it's this problem that we have right now. We not only fall short, we're always falling short. We're always missing the mark. And so when we look at this word, usteria, it, it, it says that it, we, we, we lack, we're deficient in, we're, we fall, find ourselves wanting or we have fallen behind. Matter of fact, this word is translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which was in Hebrew language. And they use this word 
to translate this specific passage in Daniel chapter 5, verse 27, when there was a writing on the wall and, and, and King Belshazzar realizes something's happening because he sees a finger writing on the wall and he wants to know what it says, many, many tekel of farsin. Well, the word tekel comes into play right here. And so in Daniel chapter 5, verse 27, it is discovered that Daniel has the ability to interpret these things. And so the king brings him before him. He says, what does it say? What does it say? I want to know. He says, no, you don't want to know. <laughs> this isn't good. And so he says, tekel means you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In other words, you don't measure up to God's standard. And as a result of that, there's going to be some sad events that transpire. All right? You're lacking in this area. But what have we fallen short of? So he tells us there at verse 23, we have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, now I need us to understand this does not refer to God and His glory but it's referring to the glory of God that is manifested in us. We no longer display the glory of God by being created in His image that when they see us, they see God. We have, we have soiled that. We have ruined that. We have faded the brilliance of the glory of God in our lives, and it no longer is reflected in us. We no longer carry the virtue of being made in His image. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Peter says, But as He called you who is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If we're created in His image, we need to maintain holiness. But we've sinned. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 5 when he's given that wonderful Sermon on the Mount. He says, it's in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. He goes on in verse 48 of chapter 5 of Matthew by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we're created in his image, We've got to act like him, and we haven't done that. So we have destroyed and we've fallen short of the perfection and the glory and the holiness of God in our lives. We've missed it. We've ruined it. So Paul writes to the church in, in Corinth, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see that? Everything that we do is to be lifting up the glory of God in the world around us so that they see Him and His goodness. You see, the people understood when, Jesus, or when Moses went before God on the mountain or when he went into the tent of meeting and God was there because when he came out or when he came down, the glory of God radiated from him. The glory of God ought to radiate from us because we're living lives that are holy. But we've fallen from that. See, our sinfulness causes us not to show forth the glory of God, which we are obligated to because we're made in His image. We're kind of like that 100-watt light bulb. Boy, it's bright. and We just put some new white light bulbs in our house. But our problem is, you screw it in and it's not 100 watts, it's like 10 or 15. It does no good. And so someone wants to replace it. 
That's what we are when we have marred the image of God in our life because of our sin. We are not fulfilling the purpose by which we have been designed. It means we've gotten ourselves in trouble, and that trouble is with the law, and it's God's law, and so now we've got a legal problem, and we stand before a judge guilty of our crimes that we have committed. So Romans 3, verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You don't even have a defense. You can't even speak, because you're guilty. The law has condemned us. So James writes to us in in the second chapter of his letter, verse 10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of it all. Did you catch that? I mean, we can keep the law, but I mess up in just one little point. I mean, I have driven my car my entire life of uh, legality, right? And, And I've always stayed at the speed limit or under. But the moment I do 56 and a 55, one little miss up and it's all blown. That's where we are. And so the terminology that is being used here in Romans 3 is terminology that we will see in a lot of legal dramas. A lot of times, you, you know, it's, it's, well, you're the perp, you know, the perpetrator. We're the one who's, who's perpetrated the law. We're guilty because we have this connection with the law that we've broken. Don't confuse it, however, with just subjective guilt feelings. We are objectively guilty because we have done it. Not just that we've thought about it, but we have done it. So we're facing the maximum penalty possible. So if I break the law of God, what is the penalty? Well, there's only one penalty. Hell. Eternity in hell apart from God. But I was only doing 56 miles an hour. It doesn't matter. There's one penalty. He's not going to give you a lesser sentence. He's not going to give you an extended sentence. It's the same sentence. So what are we going to do? I mean, the evidence against us, well, I should say the evidence against me at least is overwhelming. I don't know about you, but it's there. All right, And it cannot be hidden from the omniscient God. So the judge who's going to try our case is a very strict judge. I mean, he follows the letter of the law, and he doesn't deviate from that. And he is fair and just. So the question that I have myself is this. Is it possible then for a sinner to somehow get himself right with God before he is judged by God? I mean... I think our only hope of beating the rap is limited. You know, in most, most fictional stories, they usually uh, end up with letting the innocent go free and the guilty get what's coming to them, but, but, but we're guilty, and we don't want what's coming to us. 
So how are we going to get away with this? How are we going to get off? And before I go any further, I, I want to say that, that it is possible, catch this, it is possible for me and for you who are guilty of sin to somehow get right with the law before we're judged. All right? So there is a possibility of acquittal. That's what it comes down to. So, so hear me this. I mean, I know that I'm guilty, you're guilty, everybody's guilty. But there is a possibility of acquittal. You can get off somehow. But let's figure out how. You see, being right with the law means being in a state of righteousness. Righteousness basically means satisfying the requirements of the law. All right, how can I go back and change what I've done to satisfy the requirements of law? Well, I can't. There's no way that I can do it. I mean, I'm guilty, yet I'm seeking acquittal. You know, most people, when they go before the court, how do you plead? Not guilty. <laughs> we got you on video. I'm not guilty. What, how can you say that? I mean, we at least seek to escape some form of punishment, even if they say we're guilty, we just don't want the dreaded condemnation coming our way, right? And so there's some way that we can make up our, our sins and avoid the due consequences of our sins. We're going to find a way to do that, right? And as sinners, the only way that we can be in the state of righteousness according to the provisions of law is to then suffer the penalty of the consequences of our sin. So if you want to get right with the law, fulfill your punishment. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, if, if we have people today who are incarcerated, and thank God for places like Camp David of the Ozarks that are ministering to the kids of people who are in, incarcerated. But the only way that person who is incarcerated can get right with the law, again, is if they fulfill the obligation they have to the court of their punishment. And then they should be able to walk out fulfilling it, and it's no longer tied to them as baggage. They've paid the penalty, and now they're done. They should be free from whatever it is that they've been accused of and caught red-handed in, all right? And it should not then harbor them not to be able to live life properly. So let's pay the penalty, right, and get right with the law again with God. Again, the penalty is eternity in hell. Uh, how can I get right again? This isn't going to match. So I can't satisfy the requirements of the law, so really there's no hope for me, right? But there is another kind of righteousness. Another way to be right with the law, a way that is different than anything the law itself can provide. Now listen. To be right with the law, I've got to fulfill it completely, and if I break it, then I've got to pay the penalty, and once I pay the penalty, I'm right with the law again but I can't pay the penalty and get out of it because it's eternal. But Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 3 that there's another way to get right with the law, but it has something outside of the law. All right, so listen what he has to say here in verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. And did you catch that? There is a way to get right with God apart from the law. 
outside the law, so to speak. And it's been made known or manifested to us through the scriptures, especially the Old Testament prophets and scriptures tell us that there is a way that God is preparing and planning that there's going to be a way that they're going to make it right even though they have sinned. And then we discover that in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, he tells out for us that it is found in the gospel message of Jesus. So he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith, apart from the law, means apart from the law system. And the law system cannot bring sinners into a state of righteousness except by applying the penalty to the, to the crime. But the grace of God can. The grace system that he has established is outside the law. And it makes us righteous through Faith. All right, so after understand this, even though we have sinned, the judge now can still justify us. That's a big word, justification. All right? So in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, he tells us this, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's nothing that you can do. There's no object of work that you can apply that's going to gain you your righteousness back. So you can't do it. But by faith we can be declared righteous. He tells us there in verse 24 of Romans 3, We are justified by His grace, how? As a gift. And that gift comes to us, how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To be justified means having the judge say, there's no penalty for you. Now, it doesn't mean that that he... He, he, he says that he makes you righteous. It just basically means that he declares that you are right with the law and you don't have to pay any penalty for what you've done. To justify is a legal term. It is the opposite of to condemn. And it means the judge declares us righteous. He doesn't make me righteous. He doesn't do that. It's because he doesn't have the authority to make me righteous because I am guilty. But he's going to declare me righteous no penalties, even though he knows that I have done something wrong. Now, now we know that the people use this in Luke chapter 7 when they talk about God. God, they declare him righteous. They, they, they justify him. So in Luke chapter 7, verse 29, it says that the people justified God. Well, we can't justify God. He's already righteous. So to justify does not mean to make righteous. It simply means to say, well, we're not going to charge you with anything. So don't, you know, the charges are there, but there's no penalty. That's what he's telling us. So the only way for us to get to this point is to have a right lawyer. I mean, that's every criminal's dream, isn't it, right? You get the right lawyer. You get the best lawyer that money can buy. You get the one who is, who is crafty and sneaky, and he can find a way somehow. There's a loophole in the law that he's going to discover, or he's going to step somehow to fix things. We all want the Johnny Cochran's, don't we? All right? If it doesn't fit, you must what? Acquit. All right, so th- that's what we want. 
So let's look at our lawyer. When you're in trouble with the law, you need a good lawyer, one who can get you off even though you're guilty. That's why everybody says not guilty, right? Because you're hoping somehow he can at least lessen the punishment, if not fully get you off, all right? We need a lawyer who can say to us, don't worry, leave everything to me. I got you covered. I'll take care of your case, and you'll have no problems, right? You got that lawyer who says, you know, I'm your only hope. And you say, how much? Right? And so that's where, we, that's where we find ourselves now. And the only one who can do this, who can stand before the judge of heaven, is Jesus. That's what Paul is telling us. Right? That's what verse 22 and 24 tell us. And so in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John says, My dear little children, he's writing to the church, to us. He says, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But, but, he says, I'm writing this so that you don't sin. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a lawyer, a mediator, a defense attorney, whatever, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. All right? Our advocate, Parakletos, which means advocate or helper or, or, or an illegal assistant of some kind, all right? Outside the New Testament parameters, this word Parakletos always refers to a legal assistant, an attorney, an advocate in a court of law. Now, in John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus promises us that when he departs this world to his disciples, he tells them that my Father is going to send you this parakletos. All right? We translate that another helper. So in John 14, 26, the parakletos is identified as the Holy Spirit. And in John 15, 26, he's called the Spirit of Truth. So the concept is going to combine both the legal and the relational. He's going to be my attorney, my lawyer, but he's also my helper. The one who's going to come alongside me. And if you can get an image of this picture-wise, it is, it is the person who comes and gets under your shoulder and under your arm when you can't walk on your own too, and he kind of helps you move along, and he is there doing this for us. The only way that sinners can beat the rap of sin is to turn their case over completely to Jesus through faith in Him. No matter how guilty you are, no matter what you've done, if Jesus is your lawyer, you're going to get off. All right? I mean, He absolutely guarantees that, that you're not going to serve any time. He guarantees that the judge will justify you and say you have no penalties. So how does Jesus accomplish this? Well, let's look at his strategy. All right? If you're actually on trial here in an earthly court, let's say for murder, your lawyer would have to decide, and so how are we going to work this case, especially since you're guilty? All right? So what are we going to do? Well, what strategy can he bring into play to get you off? Or at least to have the judge declare no penalties for you. 
I think there are a few possibilities. First off, your, your lawyer can bring all kinds of, of witness characters, all right? And they can say, hey, you know, this guy is great. I've never known him to do anything bad. He's always done things wonderful and good. and It goes against his character. Right? Or maybe he could, you know, say, well, um, insanity. For just a brief moment, you went insane, all right? because of the stress and the circumstances. Or maybe he might say, let's claim self-defense, that the other guy was going to kill you and you had to kill him to, to, to save yourself. Well, if all that fails, he may say, let's bribe the judge <laughs> or lie like a dog. And I know dogs get a bad rap with that. I hear well a statement. But you, you get it. I mean, he's going to find some way to try and get you off. And so what is it that's going to be? Well, here's the deal. Jesus, our defense attorney, He has this strange gimmick, uh, an an approach to the problem that somehow is going to guarantee success. It's a gimmick that hasn't been tried before, but yet he knows it's going to work, all right? The strategy is a little bit different than what the law system can provide. Jesus' plan is this surefire way of going around the law somehow. And in doing so, what he's going to do, he's going to get you off. That's why he tells us in verse 21 of Romans 3, it's apart from the law. It has nothing to do with the law, so to speak. There's a different way because the law demands payment. The strategy is called grace. That's what he tells us in verse 24 there in Romans 3. Grace is a way of handling all of our legal problems in heaven, a way to get the judge to, profound, to profess to us that we are justified and that there is no penalty for us. Now pay attention. To be justified by grace is not having the judge say you're not guilty. Because you are guilty. Rather, he says to you, well, there's no penalties. Don't worry about it. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. So how does this work? All right. How does Jesus, our defense lawyer, pull this off? Well, he pays off the judge. (laughs) Did you know judges can be bought? This one can, but only one way, all right? See, he does it with his own resources. It's his grace defense that he promotes, and here's how it works. The payment is described as an act of redemption. That's what he told us. It is a redemption in Jesus Christ, all right? So redemption, as we know, sets us free from paying a price. God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 13, verse 1, that you guys are going to go into this land, and in the process of going into this land, I want you to now from here forth, set forth, give me the firstborn of everything born from the womb, whether it be a person or an animal. 
It's mine. Okay, that's, that's it. All right? But then he puts this little caveat in there at about 11, and he says, well, you can buy it back. You can redeem it. You can ransom it. So listen to what he says. And beginning in verse 11 of, of Exodus 13, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that the first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Now, but now he says, now hang on a second. But, but every donkey, every firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. So in other words, I don't want the donkey, give me a lamb instead. You can keep the donkey, right? But if you don't have a lamb to give me, then you've got to break the donkey's neck. That's what he says. So every firstborn of man among you shall be redeemed. Now in Numbers chapter 18, he tells us the price of what we have to pay to redeem all the firstborn. It's five shekels of silver. Now, in today's market, that's about $33, all right? And you would have to pay that in the first month after they were born. So if you don't want to sacrifice your lamb, if you don't want to sacrifice your son, then you've got to redeem it and buy it back from the death that it's going to have to be as a sacrifice to God, and you have to pay the ransom price of five shekels. Now, the question then arises is what is the redemption price for our freedom from sin? Well, it was a little bit more than five shekels of silver. Matter of fact, it was 30 pieces. And it was the payment that Jesus made of his own life and his blood on the cross. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 to 8. It says, In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, and all wisdom and insight. It's described as an act of propitiation or sacrifice of atonement. That's what he tells us. Now, what does propitiation mean? Well, to propitiate something, it literally means to, cer- to turn aside the wrath by means of an offering. And Jesus becomes the means by which we turn aside the wrath of God by his offering of his life. Propitiation is also a very common thing in pagan religions. The pagans, they always assume that they're gods that are mad at them, and so they've got to buy them off. And so they seek to provide their own offerings to turn away his wrath. But how is Christian, Christian propitiation different from that? You see, because in Christianity, in our faith, we don't have to bring the price to buy the God, the judge, off. God provides it himself by giving his one and only son as the payment for our sin. See, the work of Christ is through faith in his blood. Romans 5, 9 tells us, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So this propitiation is appropriated through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the gift that he has given us and his death on the cross, his shedding his blood, pays a penalty for our sins by putting our faith in him. 
1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. Not that we love God and He still has to punish us, but that He loved us and He says, Don't worry about it. I'll pay the penalty And he does that by giving his son. And in John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, we love John 16, 3, 16, don't we? But let's go on from there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's no penalty for you. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus, our lawyer, accomplishes this propitiation himself. His offering himself on the cross for our sin pays a full penalty and makes amends and makes us right with the law once again. His suffering in both his human and divine natures is the equivalent of hell of eternity for all mankind. He is not only our defense advocate, he is also our offering, our propitiation that turns away the wrath of God. 1 John 2.2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, this is his strategy. The strategy of grace. It keeps us from having to suffer the deserved penalty for our sins. And here's the thing. It works every time. It didn't just work for me. I can tell you how to get off as well. Jesus. But how can we afford such a lawyer? That kind of lawyer you would think would cost a whole lot. All right? Well, yeah, it does cost a lot. And no, it doesn't. Actually, it's free. He's not going to, he's giving his services free. It's a, it's, grace is a gift, as we were told there in Romans 3.24. It's the gift of God, right? But he requires that we trust him completely to take care of our situation. So it's through his blood, which he tells us in verse 22 and 25 of Romans 3. But on the other hand, it's going to cost you everything, because you have to turn your whole life over to him. You have to accept him as your Lord, as your kurios, which means your master, your Lord, your owner. Right? So you've got to surrender yourself, and now you're his. So I have to ask myself, what does a judge think about all of this? <clears throat> well, it was his idea. I mean, that's what the scripture is telling us. This is, this is his idea. Even before he created us, this was his idea to get you off. Because he knew that you were going to flub up, right? So he planned this. Romans 3, 25 and 26, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So verse 25 teaches us in the ages past that God would overlook the sins of people. 
And some people say, well, well, that's not just. He punishes some and he over... I mean, we know that he overlooked Noah's sins and Moses' sins and, and Enoch's sins. And we start and we think, well, how come they get to go to paradise and the others didn't go to paradise? Why was God doing that? Well, he says, here's why. Because in his foreknowledge, he was able to understand that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put off punishing you until my plan is fully realized in Jesus. All right? He's still going to punish those who came before. He overlooked their sins temporarily until Jesus. That's what Romans is telling us here. And then they recovered by His blood rather than the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews 9 and 10 tells us. They're useless, but it's the blood of Christ. So God, His divine dilemma was how to satisfy His own righteousness and His demands against sinful people, and yet somehow demonstrate His grace, love, and mercy, and, and restore rebellious people into a right relationship with Him. So He does this by sacrificing His one and only Son, Jesus, the one who became incarnate and took on flesh and blood so that He could relate to us. He then would pay the penalty so that we get off scot-free. It was God, the judge himself, who set forth Jesus as the propitiation, as our atoning sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, he's already using the grace system even before the sacrifice happened. Redemption through the blood of Jesus is the only strategy that allows God to be true to both His natures of being just and justifier. All right? He is just because the requirements of law for penalty are satisfied in Jesus. And He is justifier because He is free then to say that we have no penalties because of what Jesus, our defense lawyer, has done for us. So, let me wrap this up with a little story. There's a bunch of a little boy named Michael who, who grew up in a kingdom far, far away and a long time ago. And Michael lived in a very uh, distant place. And, and, and to make money as a child, he would go out into the farms and work. And he'd find any other kind of job he would do. And, and one day, in the heat of the day, he felt heat stroke and fell along the road and collapsed there. Along comes the king on horseback. And he stops and he finds the boy almost lifeless. And he puts him on his horse and he takes him back to his castle. While there, he tends to him and he cares for him. And finally, the boy regains his strength and he's so grateful for the king. And the king says, you know what? Why don't you just stay here? Why don't you just live here? And the boy's like, really, I can do this? I don't have to worry about working out there in, in the world and, and in the heat and, and, and possibly being attacked by strangers and stuff? He says, no, you just work here and, and, and serve me and, and I'll take care of your needs. So Michael agrees to do that, and he stays there, and he works. But as he gets older, he turns to those teenage years, and you know how rebellious we are as teenagers, right? He began to think, hey, I don't want to obey all the rules the king has in here in this castle. I want my own kingdom. And so he would sneak into the treasury 
because the kingdom was a very profitable place, he would take a little bit every now and then, thinking nobody would notice, and maybe he would be able to garner up enough of his stolen treasure that he could start his own kingdom somewhere, and he could be his own king, and, and he wouldn't have to obey the king's rules by staying in his castle. He thought for sure he was getting away with that, until one night the king came in. And he says to him, Michael, he says, you've lived with me for a long time. But why is it since your youth you began to steal from me and break the rules that we had established? So I know you've been doing this and you've collected quite a bit. As a result of your rebellion, I'm going to have to, to punish you. Well, Michael, he began to, to shake a little bit. And his lips began to quiver and tears really welled up in his eyes because now he knew he was really in trouble. And so he cried before his king and he knew that the king was going to banish him and exile him to some island far, far away with nobody there. He fell at his feet and he said, you know, I've broken your laws and I've tried to establish my own kingdom. I tried to do my own thing my way so I didn't have to live underneath your oppressive rules. He says, I know I deserve death for my treason, but please forgive me. King bent down and he put his hand on him. He picked him up and he said, Michael, you're forgiven. You can stay here. Now here's the difference. The problem is we've done the same thing as Michael. But our king is not so easily going to say you're forgiven. The penalty still has to be paid because of our sin. Now you can pay the penalty by spending eternity in hell, or you can accept the gracious gift that is offered to redeem your life through the blood sacrifice of Jesus, God's only Son on the cross. And then the one who is just will justify you and enable you to continue to live in his kingdom for all eternity in spite of the fact that you've blown it. What do you want? I know what I want. I want the system of grace that he has established. I don't want the law and the penalty that comes with it. But it's through your faith in Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is the only Son of God who came into this world, who offered Himself as an atoning, propitiatory sacrifice for you so that you can have your sins forgiven and God simply looks at you and says, eh, no penalties, don't worry about it. Spend eternity with Him we're going to have our invitations on here at the close. If you've got a decision to make for Christ, let's get this done today. All right? Let's confess that He is Lord. Surrender yourself to Him. Be baptized into His name, into His death and burial and resurrection. And know that what He has done for you is going to give you life that's everlasting. No penalties for your sins. Let's stand together.